From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in for ever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Last week, uh, James spoke from chapter one. And I'll summarise the story so far before we go on to chapter two that uh, Wayne has read to us. In chapter one, very briefly, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah disobeyed and took a boat in the opposite direction. God sent a storm and the boat was in danger of sinking. Jonah was thrown overboard and the storm subsided. And last week we left Jonah in the sea. And if we didn't know the end of the story, as I'm sure most of us do, uh, he was, we might have thought he was uh, going to drown. That would have been the obvious next thing. Right, so chapter two. First of all, I want to ask some preliminary questions. And the first one may sound rather strange to you. Why is chapter two there at all? Uh, it may seem strange, but it's actually a question well worth asking because sometimes it can take us straight to the heart of what a passage is about. So two things here people have noted about the psalm, chapter two, that verses two to nine could well stand alone and would not look out of place in the book of Psalms. A very similar language in the book of Psalms, and there it's a metaphor for the problems of life that rolled over the psalmist. But here, the imagery of the, of the chapter is much more neatly literal with Jonah drowning, talking about seaweed and, and so on, and going down to the bottom of the sea. So that's the first thing. And secondly, in terms of the narrative, it would actually read well to go straight from verse 1 to verse 10. So if I start reading with 17 from the last chapter, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So there, that as a narrative, that makes it quick, very brief, but it makes good sense. And things like that have suggested some people say that the psalm was not part of the original book. Now, I'm not going to go that way because there are good reasons to disagree with that. But looking at the issue makes us ask the question, that I think it's helpful, why is it there? And my answer is going to be that it gives a good reason for the change of response. 
in chapter one, God calls him to go to Nineveh and Jonah disobeys. In chapter three, God calls him to go to Nineveh and he obeys. Why the change? Now without chapter two, we might think that it was just force majeure. Jonah knew that he'd be in big trouble if he disobeyed a second time. But with this chapter, we see that there had been a genuine personal interaction between Jonah and God during the intervening period. And that I think is the important point from chapter two, that personal interaction between Jonah and God. Now, it certainly was a power encounter, but it was not just that, it was a personal encounter as well. I want to illustrate the difference with an incident from Jesus's life that is recorded in, all, in the first three gospels, but I'll take the reading from Luke chapter eight, starting at verse 43. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, if we look at that story, we see something similar to the experience of Jonah. The woman had been healed. Now that was a power encounter. And for her, that might have been enough. But it was not enough for Jesus. He wanted to talk to her, to turn that encounter into a personal encounter, so that they exchanged and spoke to one another, and it became more personal for her rather than just being a matter of power. It was important to Jesus, and it should be to us too, both for ourselves and when we're dealing with others. And I can illustrate this again from my own experience of being, oh well, as a theological student, I was surprised. I was loving the academic study, of course, because that was just me, it's the sort of thing I love doing. But in, spite, in the middle of that academic study, I also began to see more clearly that the centre of Christianity was not a system or even a book, but a person. I should have, that should have sunk in a lot earlier, but Jesus is really rather important. It came, it became more prominent in my thinking, but why did it take me so long? Of course I knew it and I'd never have denied it, but it was not so much, it came alongside the academic study, which was being pushed as hard as I could get on with it, but also to see the centre of being a person. So I still enjoy the system, I still study the book, but the person has become more important. And I read the gospels more than I used to. So that's the first point. I wanted to make that uh, for Jonah, what was important to God was the uh, personal encounter, and that it was that that transformed his thinking and led to his obedience in chapter three. The second one I can deal with much more briefly. What is Jonah thanking God for? As we saw when Wayne read it, he's thanking God, and there are two things that people have suggested. One is that the belly of the fish was a case of out of the frying pan into the fire. 
the Jonah's thanksgiving was for rescue from the fish. The fish was God's way of rescuing Jonah, is the other one, so that his thanksgiving was for rescue by the fish. And in terms of the narrative flow, I think the second makes, be uh, makes better sense. And that's what I'm going to be assuming as we work our way through the psalm. So these are things that we, we need to think about uh, as we look into the psalm in some detail. And the third of these preliminary questions, also fairly briefly, what was Jonah's mindset? In chapter one, we saw that he allowed himself to be thrown overboard without complaint. Uh, verses 11 and 12. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so the sailors asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault in this great, that this great storm has come upon you. So we see that he was resigned to death, and it must have been because he saw it as God's judgment on his disobedience. And that comes up again in verse 4 of our chapter. I said, I have been banished from your sight. So we look at this and assess his attitude. I dug up a quotation from a book on my shelves about Jonah. Jonah's desire to perish by drowning might suggest that he sees divine justice as inevitably bringing immediate punishment, in this case on Jonah himself. And that, we'll see, was inadequate, but that must have been what Jonah was thinking. So we see him as, in chapter one, as resigned to death, but not with any positive desire to die. It was a recognition, at least according to his thinking at the time, that God intended him to die. He was wrong, and it was his rescue from the storm that showed him that God had not finished with him. And in verse four of our chapter, there's a contrast. And I thought, I have been driven out from before your eyes. Nevertheless, I will again look at your holy temple. So with those things in mind, uh, we will work our way through the psalm. And the way I want to tackle it is to read it through a little section at a time and make some comments in between. And you might find it helpful to have a Bible open. I don't think it's going to work uh, trying to fit bits and pieces on the screen. But, uh, so you can see which bits are inspired and which bits are mine. And I think that's a, a worthwhile distinction. Now, in verse 2, we have Jonah's prayer. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now, as we saw back in chapter 1, Jonah thought uh, God intended him to die and seemed resigned to it. It means, might seem strange, then, that he prayed to God as he did, while he was drowning. So my suggestion is that Jonah's prayer was actually a reflex response to trouble. For him, prayer was the default mode. Of course, so it should be for us. Even when we think wrongly that God has deserted us, we should still pray. Then when he answers, uh, we will be assured that he is still with us. So on to verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Notice that it, he says, you hurled, and your waves and breakers. Jonah describes his plight 
attributing it to God, even though it was the sailors who actually threw him overboard. And that was uh, typical of the way the uh, ancient Hebrews and the biblical writers thought, that even if there were human agents involved, it, they still saw behind it the work of God. And so Jonah saw God trying to kill him in this way. Now moving on to verse 4a, the first half of verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight. Now I, NIV has I said, or I, I would say I said to myself, or I thought. This was Jonah's conclusion, looking at the logic of the of things that were happening. His disobedience, the storm, the throwing overboard, was to him evident that God had, been, had banished him from his sight. And in the second half of the verse, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. It's again a conclusion from the rescue. He realized that his earlier thinking had been wrong. He had not been totally cast out. He realized God's dealing with him was not terminal. God had not deserted him. And he will again see the temple. Now, as we apply to that, apply that to ourselves, let's think about what Jonah was doing. He was trying to interpret his circumstances to read God's attitude to him. And sometimes we do the same. So if things go well and we're happy and joyful and we know that God is with us and everything's well, God is in his heaven, we all well with the world. Things go badly and we wonder whether he's left us. But no, what he has said in Hebrews 13 is, never will I leave you, never will I take you, forsake you. It's consistent with no uh, shadow of turning. So faith is not dependent on circumstances. Faith trusts God, whatever the circumstances. And familiar words from Romans chapter 12. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our trust is to be in God. Yes, we should look at circumstances and try to understand what God is doing, but never think that because things are going wrong that he's left us. As we continue through the psalm, we see we seem to cycle through plight, prayer, rescue and confidence again, albeit in a different order. So we look first at the plight and the rescue of verses 5 and 6. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought up my life from the pit. So the plight and the rescue, then the prayer. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And then in verse 8, we have the confidence. Uh, or 8 and 9, more 9, we have the, the confidence. But verse 8 is strange. Those who cling to worldless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
And the second half of that verse is very difficult. NIV makes, tries to make sense of it in one way. The old NIV was entirely different. Various others are very different. But as I've tried to understand what's going on here, I think the point is that those who cling to worthless idols are actually talking to dead gods. They can't expect and experience answers to prayer such as that which Jonah had experienced from the living God because they were dead. Dead idols of a living God are incomparable. So by contrast, because that living God had rescued him, Jonah is in a position to respond to gracious, God's gracious acceptance and rescue with praise and sacrifice in his expression of confidence. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And before I uh, expand upon that last uh, acclamation, salvation comes from the Lord, I just want to bring out afresh the, the three points that I made as I was going through. So the first one is the importance of that personal relationship, the personal encounter with God, as it was with Jonah in his, in his prayer and the answer and his confidence, and in that woman uh, in the, uh, who was healed by Jesus. Then there's a second uh, point, that we shouldn't necessarily always be trying to interpret our experience in the, our relationship with God in the light of our circumstances. He is constant and consistent and always with us and never uh, uh, deserts us, never departs from us. And the third point, that like Jonah, our reflex response, our default mode of operation when troubles come should be prayer. But those three are the three things that I would want to bring out from that uh, discussion and from the prayers. But just turning and concluding with some thoughts from that last acclamation, salvation comes from the Lord. Last Sunday and today, we saw how God saved first the sailors and then the Jonah, and then Jonah from the storm. But in both cases, it's worth pointing out that salvation led to sacrifices and vows. So as we apply this to ourselves, what does salvation look for us? Is one question. What does sacrifice and vows look like for us? Another question. We'll look at both very briefly. Salvation for us will often be, like Jonah and the sailors, from the storms of life. Sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes God leaves us in the storm for a while, like he did with Jonah. And from the, the way the account runs, it seems to be rather a last minute thing with Jonah, that uh, God didn't uh, rescue him until he was really on the point of drowning. And one could say, with Jonah learned something from that uh, experience. He learned some, a lot about God, some of which uh, James brought out last week, and more of which we'll see as we go through the other chapters, leave that for other people. But the delay was for a purpose, and I think we can always have confidence in God that that is so. But if we need sometimes salvation from the storms of life, much more we need salvation from sin, with a forgiveness, with reconciliation to God, with uh, a setting free and the, and the joy that comes from knowing 
but God is for us. Who could be against us? And then perhaps more briefly, as we look at the sacrifices and vows, I'd ask the question, what do they look like for us? I want to talk, pick three verses from the New Testament, which take the, the sacrifice theme and apply them to Christians. First is from 1 Peter to uh, 2.5, where Peter writes, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the sacrifices we offer are not animals. We would be rather unpopular if we took a, a lamb across to Abbey Field when we're meeting again at the URC building and uh, slaughtered it. That would uh, get us into trouble. But that isn't what God is after, it's spiritual sacrifices. We look at two of the verses that give us this. Through Jesus, therefore, in Hebrews 13, 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes when the circumstances are uh, pretty bad, the sacrifice of praise is a genuine sacrifice. But always it's a, it's a pleasing to God to acknowledge that he is, and to trust him, and to uh, affirm that we do trust him because he is worthy, because of the good things he has done. And then in Romans chapter 12, uh, familiar to uh, many Christians over the centuries, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Notice the logic here. In the view of God's mercy comes first. It's that because it's because of that that uh, there is anything to be discussed here. Always that comes first. But the response, only as we have experienced that God's mercy, is that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, not the dead ones of the ancient temple, but rather a whole life. It's not that we sacrifice, but rather we are the sacrifice. A whole life, a whole of our lives is to be a response to God's mercy. And I'll sum that little section up by quoting someone I heard a long time ago, and I can't remember who, but he said that for Paul, theology is grace and ethics is gratitude. But thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we have experienced your mercy, that we've experienced the forgiveness that you can bring, restoration to a relationship with you, reconciliation with you when we were enemies. We thank you so much. And Lord, we pray that we may more and more uh, commit our lives to you as living sacrifices, to be what you would have us be, that we might be uh, pleasing, holy and pleasing to you, and so that we might truly and properly worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.